it felt like of the utmost importance that I not sell out how much I love my son and how painful it was to try and get a laugh. So that's like always part of the calculus is like, I can get a laugh here. I know how to put a joke here that will make these people laugh. Do I want that laugh? This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, and I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, comedian Michael Cruz Kane on what happens when you turn a devastating loss into a stand-up comedy show, and why telling the truth about grief is such a powerful thing for yourself and sometimes for the world. Settle in, everybody, all of that and a lot more coming up right after this first break. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai, if you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends. So like many people, I first learned of comedian Michael Cruz Kane back in 2019 when he posted what became a viral thread on Twitter. He wrote, quote, 
This isn't really what Twitter is for, but 10 years ago today, my son died, and I basically never talk about it with anyone other than my wife. It's taken me 10 years to realize that I want to talk about it all the time. End quote. What followed after he posted that tweet was an outpouring of both support and storytelling, with thousands of people sharing their own stories of grief, many of them for the very first time. Michael hears a lot of grief stories now, almost as many as I do. <laughs> he hears them via social media, but also from the audiences of his one-man show, Sorry for Your Loss, and from guests on his award-winning podcast, A Good Cry. It turns out that people actually like talking about grief when it's a conversation between real human beings and not like some weird rewarmed collection of condolence card one-liners. Michael Cruz Kane is an Emmy-nominated and Peabody Award-winning writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He's been an actor and a stand-up comedian for years with numerous shows to his credit. But here's the thing. A lot of writers and actors pull from their personal lives to influence their work, and we've had a lot of them on the show. People like Tembe Locke with her Netflix show From Scratch, and the poet Maggie Smith with her book You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Pulling from your personal life to feed your creative professional life, totally a thing that people do all the time. But Michael Cruz Kane is a comedian. How do you take a devastating personal loss and turn that into comedy. This week on the show, we get into the complexity of making theater out of personal tragedy. We also talk about how to break devastating news, usually right before somebody goes on stage for their own set. And we talk about why Michael Cruz Kane is fine with being thought of as the grief boy, professionally speaking, if it means that more people get comfortable talking openly about grief. So let's get to it. I am so glad to have you here with me today. We were talking before we got rolling about being sort of internet social media ships that pass in the night. So I'm glad to like actually finally get to face to facey. Yes, absolutely. We're like secret but public secret admirers of each other. Ooh, public I'm, I am of you anyway. Yeah, I love the public. I feel like that should be a T-shirt or a band name: Public Secret Admirers, or an or an ex or an expose or something. Oh my gosh! Okay, keeping two. I was gonna say keeping two funny people on track, but then <laughs> I don't know how funny I actually am. But anyway, all right. So there are so many. There are so many places we could go, including whether or not I'm funny. But that's not the topic of the show. That's a separate podcast to dissect my sense of humor. Anyway, so I. I feel like I, I'm i trying to do a new thing here. Normally, I like jump into what people are up to and what you've learned about life so far and all of these things. And I feel like it skips over the reason we're here. So I would love to start with Fisher, if you're open yeah, to that. Can you tell us about him, introduce, him to, introduce us to him? Yeah, so... What is a version of this that is under a thousand hours? Mm. My wife and I, my wife, got pregnant with twins in um, 2009. The pregnancy was very complicated all the way through. And our sons were born at 32 weeks, identical twin boys, Truman and Fisher. And there had been at least one point during the pregnancy where we thought we would lose one, if not both of them. And they had something called twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome, which it means that one of them gets 
an excess of nutrients and one of them gets a deficit and it's really bad for both of them. And we had um, a laser ablation procedure done during the pregnancy that seemed to like correct all of that, but it was still like very touch and go the whole way. And we had a stretch in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, where we felt pretty confident that they were both going to leave the hospital with us. I mean, like after the laser ablation surgery, we assumed incorrectly that we would at some point in the near future be at home raising two sons. On his well, the 33rd day, we got a call from the hospital. We would go and visit them every day and spend hours and hours at the hospital holding them, et cetera. On the 33rd day before we got there, one of the doctors called us to say that something was happening with Fisher and we needed to come right away. And by the time we got there, everything was so bad. And he had developed something called a volvulus, which means that his intestines had detached from the wall of his abdomen and twisted around. And there wasn't really any coming back from that. He developed something called sepsis. And, you know, from the phone call to when he died actually was a very short amount of time. It happened insanely fast. That's the story of his sort of existence as a regular person in the world. In addition to that, there's, you know, all the thinking that you keep doing and all the ways in which he continues to live and that my wife and I and our living children try or I was going to say try to keep him alive or without trying, he remains alive in some way. Mm. We're going to get into how that relationship continues over the course of our time together. But thank you for sharing your family with us. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. There's something in there about the abruptness of all of it, right? Like I was reading um, the TED interview that you did and you, you shared the story and you said, I'm sorry if that news felt abrupt and blunt, but that's how it was, abrupt and blunt. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really shocking mm. just to go from every part of it, but to go from like, you know, having one vision of your life to trying in vain to erase that so quickly and be like, actually, it's going to be something very different from that. And, you know, there's compounding the grief that would exist if my wife and our twin boys at that time were the only people in the entire world. That would have been an, an immense amount of grief. And then there's also a lot of other people that are alive in the world. And so there's like a re-griefing every time someone says, oh my God, I haven't seen you. How are the twins? And you have to be like, dude, I mean, this sucks for you and for me, but I know you just like wanted me to say great, but one of them died. Uh, and having to do that over and over again was brutal I mean, and not anybody's fault, just people trying to be nice. Yeah. Being the bearer of bad news over and over and over. Like, I remember that that cost benefit analysis of what do I say, right, is yeah. now the right time and I can't not. Like, it's such bizarre math. Yeah, and also uh, being a comedian, a lot of the times that I would get that sort of innocuous question, it would be like at a, like right before someone's going on stage at a comedy show and they're like, you know, they're about to do 15 minutes about how spending time at the barber is such is so silly. And just before they go on stage, I'm like, oh, and my son died. And it's like, well, I've just ruined your entire evening, if not mm -hmm. your month by telling you that at this time. Yeah. And there's like, there's no good time for that, right? 
But it's like the, what are the options that are available to you? Because if somebody asks, you can't lie. That is very true. And also you asked about the abruptness. That was the origin of this part of the conversation. One of the things that helps the abruptness for other people was like social media, was telling people on Twitter or Instagram Mm -hmm. or Tumblr or Blogspot or whatever that this had happened so that they could deal with their reaction to it over a long period of time. Yeah. Like they could hear it on a Monday on our blog and then not see me for two weeks and have sort of processed a lot of whatever they were going to feel in the interim. So it didn't feel like it was, because it's, I don't want to use the word traumatic, but it's a lot for someone to hear that information and feel like they have to respond to it in the moment. It's very scary for a lot of people. Absolutely. And it's interesting too, because like you and your wife didn't get that grace period. You didn't get the time to absorb the information before needing to make a response. Yeah. But we we kind of, in a way, get to, get is, the, is not the best word here, but like we, we get to offer that to others in some ways, like a cushioning for the news that for which we had no cushion. Yeah, and uh, you want that for them, but also you want it for you because mm. one of the things that can happen in situations where you're sharing something traumatic that happened to you is, you know, it's it's two months later and you have processed it in some way. It's still brutal, but you've found a way to manage it. But this person's never heard it before. So when they hear it, they're 10 times more sad in this moment than you are. And now it's like, oh, shit. I got to make you feel better (laughs) about this thing that happened to me. Yeah, it's such a burden on the person at the center, right, to have to suddenly shift into that position of caretaking, in some ways minimizing, right? Like, it'll be okay. Like, did you find find yourself sometimes saying things that you knew were absolute garbage, but they just, like, leapt out of your mouth anyway? I'm sure I did. I mean, so much of that time is hazy. Yeah. So... I don't remember exactly the kind of stuff that I said. I would say it was more frequently people saying stuff to me that was meaningless and Mm. trying to be like, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. The bless bless your heart. The bless your heart thing like, oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta go. And no one ever said anything that made me mad or that was like distressing. It was just like, sorry for your loss is something that the first 10 times you hear it, you're like, that's very sweet. The 50th time you hear it, you're like, right, 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 right. I think there are a lot of different worlds in which people have like that thought process of like, I don't understand why they were upset by what I said or they were disappointed or it didn't move them in the way I thought it would. And it's like, well, they've heard it a billion times. Yeah. So it means something different to them the billionth time. Yes. That is one of a zillion different reasons why people don't tend to talk about their grief openly or casually or really get into it with a lot of people. And that was kind of true for you too, right? Like in the tweet that launched the world here, like you had said that for 10 years or so, you really only talked about your family's loss with your wife. Yeah. I mean, I think unless somebody asked me about it, which was pretty rare, not mm-hmm. that people were unfeeling, they were more just like, there was sort of like one, you would have one sentence or two sentences about it. And then it's like, okay, what do you guys want to order or whatever? Yeah. So I think most of those conversations happened between me and my wife. And then, yeah, on the 10th anniversary of his death, I tweeted about it. And that 
changed my perception of what it is to have to feel grief because mm. so many people responded to it with stories that were all dissimilar to mine in many ways but at the core I was able to relate to them very strongly and they were able to relate to one another. I think like the that tweet about Fisher's death that that you wrote on the 10th anniversary that was probably the first time I met you like full disclosure I quite sure I didn't know you before then. Um, power <laughs> power of social media. But I kind of want to know two things. For people who haven't seen it, tell us what it was about. But what I'm more curious about is what changed for you. Every year on the anniversary of his death, I would write something and mm-hmm. put it on whatever social media thing I was using at the time. And on across all platforms, I was... Uh, I guess I wouldn't say unpopular, but not popular. So it wasn't like <laughs> I was tweeting and thinking, you know, that this is, I hope Anderson Cooper sees this. It was really like, okay, well, the people who follow me on any of these platforms are a few of my friends and my family. And it was just a way for me to like connect with them about this thing that had happened and to talk about the progress of Truman, our son who survived, and to talk about later on, talk about Willa, our daughter. And on the 10th anniversary, I tweeted this thing about Fisher and about how I felt about grief and how the way that I felt that it was portrayed or that I was able to express it in conversation felt so flat and one-dimensional. And what I wanted to share was that grief is multidimensional. It's infinite. It's ongoing. And you as a human being are finite, even though it feels like this feeling is you know, from from the center of the universe and the beginning of time. And what changed after I tweeted it was that thousands and thousands of people responded with kindness and uh, support, but also with brutally sad stories of their own. And it made me aware of the fact that there were many, many people out there who had had something brutal happen to them and didn't feel like they had any place to talk about it. And one of the things that social media could be good for is that you could be anonymous if you wanted to. But Bandit6969 could tell you on Twitter about the saddest moment in his life. And if he was ashamed of the sadness, you would never have to know that it was him. And so all kinds of people poured out these beautiful and distressing stories of their sadness and it changed the way that I felt really about the world Mm. there's something really powerful in that about like the anonymity if you so choose it the space to be allowed to tell the truth about something that you've been carrying I kind of have two minds about this one is like if somebody asks you how you're doing and you start telling the truth about that and sharing it and they come in with like my goldfish died when I was seven I know just how you feel like that's grief hijacking right like that's that's not (laughs) cool but it sounds like you had the good side of the experience of people sharing was to feel like so many of us are carrying central grief central sadness like these formative experiences maybe and they're like the the silent foundational background that's sort of always running, but we never get a chance to talk about, right? Until there are these like little portals that open up. One of the things that's always bugged me 
about sort of grief memes and flowery grief language is the whole like you're not alone thing. I think the way that we use that is like, see, other people have suffered too, so don't feel so bad because there are other people with you. But that's not what you took from that, right? You didn't take like, other people are also suffering, so I can not be so sad or something. Yeah, I mean, it didn't minimize the suffering to me. It connected it. I see what you're talking about there, and I think it's a fine line because I do think there is some comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Because I think part of what's distressing about grief is it feels so isolated. It feels like my son died and I walk outside and people are going to 7-Eleven. Like, what are they doing? Yeah. And so to realize that, like, even those people in there, the one ordering the, like, the Slurpee or whatever, something fucked up probably happened to her. And to the guy who drives you in the cab and to, you know, all these people, when you look on the subway, if you could somehow tap into their inner lives, you would find that 80% of them have had something horrific happen to them, but they're not wearing it. So you think you have a special sadness that no one else has ever experienced. It doesn't take away from the sadness to know that other people have felt it. I love the sadness i like it's part of what sustains me i don't know if that's a perverse thing to say or not not at all but knowing that there are other people out there who speak it's like you speak a language but you don't think anybody else speaks it so there's no you can't talk but finding out that actually everyone speaks it we're all we all secretly speak it is a very comforting thing yes i love this because this is this is sort of foundational for me here is that so many people are carrying around things that they think they're not allowed to talk about or they've tried to talk about and they've had it minimized or dismissed or hijacked so they just stop speaking when you stop speaking it doesn't mean you don't have anything to say right so there's something so powerful in being allowed to tell the truth of your own experience and knowing that that's going to be heard and reflected like i love i love that this is sort of like the the cure for the loneliness inherent in grief is being allowed to tell the truth about how bad this is or how hard this is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I first started to do this work and I would go to media outlets or when I was shopping my book around the first time and people would be like, this is great. We we so much need a different way to talk about grief in this culture, but nobody wants to talk about grief, so we pass. And I'm like... You know why nobody wants to talk about grief? It's because the ways that we talk about it are reductive and it'll make you stronger and grow through what you go through and all of that stuff. And when you when you put parameters around the conversation like that, nobody wants to talk about it. Because those platitudes, when the people who want to talk about grief hear them, I don't know, like my gut response with all love is fuck off. Yes. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, yes, like, you know, he's in a better place or whatever, which those aren't even things people ever said directly to me, but I see them. I see them like, you know, when you walk through the condolences section of the card store, you see stuff and I'm like, man, I am so lucky not to have anyone in my life who sent me some of this bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. Like otherwise intelligent people with good relational skills will say and send the most stupid stuff like <laughs> and i like so i know that people have good intentions and they're awkward and they like they don't know what to say but i think one of the reasons 
that it's so important to have these conversations is to talk about what really helps and what really doesn't. Because we we want that relatedness, right? Like we want to be able to support each other. But the platitudes and the language that we have is never going to get us there to that kind of connection. Yeah. And you want to feel like you're talking to a person. Yes. So when you hear someone say something to you that clearly has been cribbed from, you know, a workbook about grief that they got from their grandmother's church that they went to once, you're like, I'm. oh, we're not having a conversation. You are reciting mm-hmm. to me something you said, and you're doing it with love. You're you're doing what you have been taught to do, to like try and boost me up. So I did a show in the city about Fisher, and after the show, a woman came up to me, and we talked about the show, and she mentioned that she had kids, and I was like, oh, well, how are your kids? And she said, well, I mean, you know, at least they're alive, thank God. And I was like, oh, fuck, that's a brutal way to respond to this. But at the same time, I was like, oh, you're a person. Like, you're telling me <laughs> what this made you think. What the, my thing made you think is, oh, shit, I'm so glad my kids are not dead. And that felt so real to me that it was like, oh, I, I'm so happy to talk to you. Because so many people would never tell me that thought that they had. Mm-hmm. And of course, it makes sense that you would think that. And of course, everyone who comes to see this show who has a child that hasn't died I'm sure they think that. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to have someone say this thought that I know people have had. It, to me, that's a great relief. I can't speak for everyone. So I don't want to encourage you necessarily to parade the non-death of your living children in front of other people. But for me, it felt like a relief. Yeah, there's a an honesty in that and a realness that is absolutely missing from the sort of rehearsed script book that we've inherited around what to say to a grieving person. Right, like yeah. go off book, people. Like this is this is nuts, and it's it's a big stretch. I mean, one of the one of the things that I hear you say or have read you have read that you've said. Gosh, my my <laughs> language skills. Speaking of language skills, are kind of atrocious today. What is up with that? But that <laughs> like being awkward is actually the best move, right? Yeah. Well, I think just for me, and again, I don't want to speak for everybody. I like a real response i like Mm -hmm. someone saying the thing that it made them feel because i don't know how to everyone else is boring and i i don't need to hear the platitudes there's no there's no point for you or for me in that Mm. part of the conversation and i should also say i'm over a decade out from him dying yeah i might not have felt this way the day after he died I think my feelings have evolved. Maybe I needed the, maybe the platitudes would have been all I could have handled. I truly barely remember anything anyone said to me for months after that. So I don't know. Yeah. You and I have the same grief timeline. So my partner died in 2009. So we're, we're at the same weird marking of time of before and after. And I, like, I feel that like I, there are things that I remember because I'm a writer and because I wrote them down and because I started talking about them. But so much of those early days is such a fog and such a haze. And I think that that's just part of being human is that the edges get dulled. Yeah. I think that's a big question about cataclysmic grief or or just something of this force that when it happens, the thought of surviving it can actually be kind of offensive. Do you remember that part? Do you remember that part of feeling like I don't want to have anything to do with this? I think 
I'm sure not unique, but a rare situation that we found ourselves in was that we had another son mm. who was if not in any way at that time moved by what had happened. You know what I mean? Like he's just been born. He needs to be fed. He needs to be changed. You know, he needs the support of parents. And so we had no choice, but like it was automatic to keep mm. going in spite of, you know, the parallel grieving that we were doing. So I think it helped us stay in motion, which we desperately needed. Yeah. And maybe, you know, in other ways it postponed our dealing with some of the feelings that we needed to deal with. I'm, I'm not even sure. I'm just speculating that sure. that almost must have happened. There wasn't any reckoning with what should I do now? It was like, well, this life just got here and we love him very much. And so we need to, we need to deal with that. And truly, if Truman had not lived, I don't know how we would have splintered off from the path that we are on right now, mm -hmm. but I don't know that, the, that we would have survived that. Yeah. There's something about the immediacy of action needs to be taken that I think is really, really helpful in early grief for a lot of people, whatever that looks like, right? Like that shortened horizon line. And certainly with a newborn, like the horizon line is like just a few minutes ahead. There's like <laughs> yeah. feeding and changing and trying to get sleep and trying to remember to feed yourself and all of that stuff. There's something about the mechanics of life that can be really stabilizing when something completely destabilizing happens. Yeah, that's, yeah. Exactly, that's exactly right. I think it, there is comfort in the things that have to be done. Mm -hmm. And yeah. having spoken to a lot of people over the last few years about grief, one of the things that almost everyone has advised for people who are going through something like in the middle of the trauma now is to just give yourself something to move forward. Mm -hmm. Not like, you know, you don't have to write a play or anything, but like literally if it's just today I'm going to shower, like even yes. that it can be enough to change your whole outlook on the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it really is shortening the horizon line, but also lowering your expectations of yourself, right? Like yes. what was a great successful day that you felt good about before this happened? You cannot compare now to then, right? Like now. Yeah in those early days, it's like, you took a shower. That is a fucking <laughs> you win. You nailed it. That was amazing, <laughs> right? And like Good that- for you. Exactly, like, woo, that is a hard one. And there, there's something there's something about, like I, I feel like a lot of people ask me questions about later grief and what that looks like and how did you get from the early days to where you are, where there, where there is a bit of buffer between that. And like everybody that I talk to and thinking about myself, I'm like, honestly, I don't even remember. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we survived from that moment to this moment, but that it was made up of much shorter chunks of time. Yes, absolutely. I think it's really hard to think about, you know, from those early days, how am I going to get to 10 years from now, 15 years from now? And you just can't possibly know that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the thing you said about lowering the standard is so right. Just like give yourself permission to do any fucking thing at all. Yeah. And that will be it. That's what you did. What did you do? You ate a cookie? Dude, that's it. Yep. You that's did it. Today. That's today. The day is done. The day is done. And a thing after a thing after a thing after a thing 
makes life. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk about your show. You mentioned your show. Now you've got two shows. So you've got your podcast, which is a good cry, which you open with all of your guests. You open with what's your relationship to grief, which is such an amazing question. I have occasionally swiped it for my own show, but also <laughs> your live show, which is not currently running. You close that, but I want to talk about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about both shows because you are by profession, by trade, a comedian and the combination of comedy and baby death are not exactly pairings that you would normally make. <laughs> yes, that is that is true. In fact, Jason Zinneman, who's a writer at the Times, wrote an article about sort of grief in comedy mm -hmm. and included a bunch of, like, talked about my show, I'm trying to think off the top of my head now who else he talked about. Alyssa Lim Paris, I know, was one. A, a bunch of like really phenomenal, smart, funny people also writing about grief. And I read through the comments because I'm an idiot. And the comments were almost completely, well, no, not completely, about 50-50. Half of them were reasonable human beings and half of them are the kind of people who would comment on articles. <laughs> and... <laughs> And a lot of those comments were things like, you know, how dare you make jokes about X, Y, Z. And a thing that I want to assure people who have not seen the show is that I don't think there's anything funny about the specifics of what happened. I'm not trying to make jokes. It's the saddest thing that's ever happened to me. And if it's happened to anyone else, it's probably the saddest thing that ever happened to them. And I hold that pretty sacred. Mm. But... I think around the idea of grief and the ways in which we deal with it or try to pretend we're not dealing with it, there's a lot of humor there. And my hope is that for the people who have felt it, that there are at least some parts of the show where they go, oh, thank God somebody said that because I think that all the time. Yeah. Not to like be a spoiler about the show or anything, even though it's closed. <laughs> One of the things I explore in the show, for example, is that I used to do a fair amount of stand-up about having two kids when the entire time I had three kids. Mm. So like trying to reconcile the thing that I was saying publicly, which really felt, I didn't feel as though I was lying, but to listen to it back years later and go, well, this doesn't really feel right. It doesn't, it doesn't feel true to talk about only having these kids because I also have another kid and it feels incorrect in my heart to keep saying this. Mm. Anyway, I know that doesn't sound funny, but believe me. No, but it, it is. But there's something in there, like there's so much that I want to pull out of that. First, there's the how dare you, right? This conflation that we have with comedy and sarcasm or comedy and cheapening, making fun of something. Right. Yeah. Like that says more about the person's definition of comedy than it does about the content of the show. I think that's very true. I think there's a lot of people who have a very specific idea of what comedy is. And it's like, you know, take my wife, please. Mm -hmm. Or airplane food tastes bad mm -hmm. and haven't really opened their minds to the fact that like comedy can be a tool to do other things. I'm not the first person to do that. I'm not even close, right? There's been many, many comedians who have to have done that, who use comedy as a vehicle for social change, for to combat racism, homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. 
my thing is I wanted to talk about grief. I read that you that you had been looking for a way to use comedy for more than laughter, which is really what you just said, right? Yeah, I think like I've been doing comedy for a long time. I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> if I want to be funny, I usually can be. The things that have resonated with me as I get older more and more are the things that move beyond laughter that like I leave it changed somehow. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was trying to do. So, you know, I'm still doing stand-up sets here and there that are not all profound <laughs> in any way. I also have a background, like, you know, I came up doing theater before I ever did comedy. And I wanted to try and make something on that scale. But really, like, I wanted to connect with people. I wanted, I wanted to feel, I wanted, like, you know, I would like to say that I wanted other people to feel less alone, but I also wanted myself to, to feel less alone. You know, I, want, I would like to say that I wanted other people to feel like they could keep their loved ones alive, but I wanted to keep my son alive as well. Mm. There's something about using both theater and comedy as a vehicle for connection. It's sort of the Trojan horse of that, right? Like you think yeah. you're coming to a show, but what you're really doing is finding community or finding inroads to community and the both directions of that. I love that you said, I made this show for myself. Right? Yeah. I hope in so doing, it's more universal than it would be if I tried to make it for other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there's that thing where the, the personal is the universal, but if you try to be universal, you're gonna lose people, right? Because you end up back in the platitudes, right? Exactly. Like what we were talking about at the beginning, you end up in a bunch of like mishmash nonsense that everybody's already heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is really in using your own lived experience and talking about that because it's, you know, it, that is where the magic is. That's what people connect to. They don't connect to the universal. They connect to some part of themselves that they see reflected on stage or they hear through their headphones. Intimacy is literally the way that we connect. Yes. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? 
we're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai. If you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, before we get back to our conversation, I want to talk with you about creative approaches to grief. I mean, that's one of the driving forces of this whole episode, right? Exploring grief through creative outlets. Writing isn't going to cure anything, but it can help you hear your own voice, and that is incredibly powerful. More than 10,000 people have taken my 30-day Writing Your Grief course, and it is still one of the very best things I've ever made for you. There are lots of writing workshops out there with prompts like, tell us about the funeral. My Writing Your Grief course is not like that at all. The prompts are deeper, they're more nuanced, they're designed to get you into your heart and into your own actual story. You can read all about the Writing Your Grief course at refugeinggrief.com backslash W-Y-G. That's W-Y-G for Writing Your Grief. You can see a sample prompt from the course and get writing your own story in minutes. The course is self-guided so you can start right away. Refugeinggrief.com backslash W-Y-G or find the link in the show notes. All right, back to my conversation with writer and comedian Michael Cruz Kane. I want to get into the community stuff that happens, but there's there's another more intimate piece of community that I want to talk about in the ways that you develop your shows and produce your shows. Something that I I read in getting ready for this conversation was that you were terrified of cheapening your experience by packaging it for the stage. Can you tell me about that a little bit? So when I started doing stand-up, the only thing I wanted to do was be funny. And it really didn't matter what price I paid for that, by which I mean I was very self-deprecating. And that meant that I would like sort of make fun of my ethnic background. I would make fun of my family. I was a lot of like putting down of myself and the people that were related to me. And I was doing that because it felt like it was easy for people to watch. It was Mm -hmm. easy for them to see someone kind of shit on himself and they would laugh at it. But once I got to a certain level, the more I did that, I was like, this actually feels kind of fucked up. And once I was telling this like deeply personal part of my story, of the story of my wife, of our family, it felt like of the utmost importance that I not sell out how much I love my son and how painful it was to try and get a laugh. So that's like always part of the calculus is like, I can get a laugh here. I know how to put a joke here that will make these people laugh. Do I want that laugh? Is this a laugh that I want? And I think going through the show and looking at every joke and being like, I know we could get a laugh off of this, but is it worth that? Am I trading off 
some some piece of integrity to get that laugh and in every case we my director josh sharp and i and our producers at audible would choose integrity which it wasn't a hard choice to make it's just like sometimes naturally in the process of writing or a lot of the stuff was quote unquote written by me just talking out loud and making a joke i would sometimes look back at that and go well you know what i don't want that to represent my experience so let's just take it out Mm -hmm. so there are times in the show where deliberately it's like you know here's eight minutes of a quote-unquote comedy show where there are no jokes where like you know you're just gonna have to feel what it felt like for me to go through this you also talk about this with carrie right Mm -hmm. because this wasn't just your experience alone this is your experience as a couple as parents as individuals as a family having a conversation about consent to how much of our story is on stage and what are you comfortable with? Like these are really high level relational skills. Yeah, well, I think the one of the greatest nightmares in the world would have to be being in a relationship with a stand-up comedian <laughs> because you're you would always be concerned that any little thing you do would end up being the butt of a joke that a million people laugh at. Mm-hmm. And I think like, especially for something like this, it was just very important to me that everybody in my family feel good about every every part of it. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons I did this show, but one of them, I don't know if I've ever said this before. I mean, I've said it to her, but one of them is to make her proud. Like mm-hmm. I want her to be proud of like what we survived and how we survived it. If any part of the show made her feel bad, it would be the worst feeling I could possibly imagine because I certainly don't want to re-traumatize her by putting it on stage. I wanted it to be a way for us to heal. And like when I say us, I mean like everybody, humanity, but really us, me and her and our kids. I think that's part of what makes public work so powerful. Again, coming back to that idea that the more personal, the more intimate, the more people can see themselves in it. And talking about that offstage process, I think is also really important because we're, we, we don't survive our losses in a vacuum. And there are other hearts in the room. There are other experiences in the room. And how do we stay true to ourselves and do what we need to do and also honor the sovereignty and the experience of the people we love there's no one easy answer to that but understanding that it is so much of what you see on stage or what you read in a book or what you hear in an interview there's a giant invisible river around that of relationship and consent and conversation before you even get to the stage i think that is from my perspective like hopefully true i think there are Mm. people who are honest and spontaneous in a way that I think can be bad. (laughs) (laughs) There are some thoughts that you want to curate before you express them, just to make sure that you're saying something that has an underlying truth to it, as opposed to a truth that you felt for once, a thing you felt for one second. Hmm. Even if you say, you know, here's this, this dark thought that I had or whatever, and say, and I don't feel that way anymore. But I just think the absolute free flow of information directly from your mind to your mouth is not always the best way to go. 
I have a version of that on a sticky above my thing. Like the things that you're thinking don't all need to be said out loud. But I also like the, the context and the, the ability to go back later and say, you know, I said this thing. It doesn't feel right. I'm going to check in with myself, check in with the people that I care about, and we'll make a change, right? It's not about doing everything perfectly. It's listening to yourself, right? Like checking in with yourself. I said this thing that was true in the moment, but looking back at it, I'm not really comfortable with that. So I get to have a do-over. I think that we put yeah. a lot of pressure on ourselves to like get the right words, do the right things all the time. And you don't always and that's yeah. okay too you can come back and do repair yeah and you can also give yourself a moment to think before you answer a question mm. I, I used to work at a tutoring company and i remember one of the things that i really admired about my boss there who i admired in pretty much every way is that when someone asked him a question that he didn't know the answer to like right away he would take a second and you could see him thinking before he answered the question. And I was like, holy shit, I never, it never even occurred to me that was a possibility. Yeah, the pause. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was a guest who was on earlier this season who said, you get to pause and the pause lets you make a boundary, right? Like the boundary, the boundary is in the pause. So when somebody asks you a question or asks you to do something, you get to take that beat and understand how you want to respond. If you don't know the answer, do I want to say this? Do I want to say that? Like, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of power in knowing that you can you can take a beat if you don't know how to answer something or you're not sure how you feel about something. Like, you, yeah. you get to have a minute. There's a couple of more things that I want to get into speaking of taking a minute because I've got like nine nine thousand different things that I want to get into but <laughs> as a performer as somebody who is in some ways known for a very devastating thing right and I also know that Carrie went back to school after Fisher's death and became a pediatric nurse, right? She works in NICU. Does she still work in NICU? She worked in the pediatric intensive care unit for a while. Now she works in post-anesthesia care, but also with children. Got it. So have you experienced that thing that people say sometimes that, yes, this terrible thing happened, but look at all the people you're helping because of it? Has that been something that you've heard, something that Carrie's heard, that sort of look, look at the gift that you've taken from this terrible thing? Some version of that. And I think there's like, that's sort of related to the um, everything happens for a reason. Like, I think mm -hmm. it's kind of in that category. And I weirdly think that that statement, everything happens for a reason, can be true if you decide to make a reason for it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our reckoning with his death is us trying to make a reason is like being like, okay, well maybe not explicitly, but just being like, what will I, what will I do with this? How can mm. I survive? And so, you know, the way in which he lives on, I mean, there are thousands of ways, but two of them are, I don't think Harry would be a pediatric nurse if Fisher hadn't died. And I certainly wouldn't have written my show about him dying if he had lived. I think that'd be a pretty weird show That would be write. a very weird show. Mm -hmm. So I hope that in some ways, for me, he remains alive in those ways and others. 
And I hope that that's the case for other people, that other people will hear this conversation that you and I are having. And in some way, they will know that Fisher Kane was a person. Yeah. I love that distinction between other people telling you the meaning of your son's death versus you and Carrie individually choosing, this is a thing that happened. What might we do with it? How might this shape the choices that we make for ourselves, given our own talents, interests, curiosities? Like there's something very qualitatively different about what somebody tells you the reason is, what somebody tells you the meaning is for your own loss and the meaning or the action that you take from it for yourself. Yeah, I think what you may or may not ever find or seek. I think, mm-hmm. you know, if, look, if you don't want to find meaning, do what you get, do what you need to do. Yeah. But I think for me and Carrie, and I don't want to speak for her, mm-hmm. but I think it would be right to say that the choices we made to honor him felt almost not like choices. It felt like this is the thing that I have to do. They felt like a vocation in the purest sense of those words. Like, you know, I'm up there doing stand up about, I don't know, pornography or whatever. And I'm like, what the fuck am I talking about? I don't mm-hmm. want to be talking about this. Yep. I want to be, here. I have something that I want to talk about and I have to talk about it. And so then I just started doing it because there was, I didn't know how to continue doing what I was doing. Yeah. I've heard that story so many times and it was my own experience too. Like, what else would I do? Like, this is what I'm good at. This is who I am. This is what I do. And here is this giant thing. And what else would I do if not this? And that isn't true for everybody. I think there can be that pressure to find meaning, start a foundation, write a book, do this thing. And if that's not coming from inside you, then it's not yours, right? I I feel like people feel that pressure a lot to make something beautiful out of something devastating. And I just want to underscore that that is not required of anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You get to choose the life that you build from that point forward. And you don't have to do bloody anything. Yeah, and I think there are also, I'm sure, many people who experience a loss and the loss is of a motherfucker mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. like, and you're not inclined to celebrate or to keep their story going on forever mm-hmm. i can think of so many reasons that you wouldn't quote unquote seek meaning afterwards i can only say that for me it's what it has certainly helped yeah one of the favorite lines of yours that I read in getting ready for this show um, in an interview about your live show, sorry for your loss, somebody asked if you've ever played in that city before. And you said, insofar as time and space are meaningless, in a sense, I have always been performing here, which I loved, <laughs> which I loved. And you were totally joking around, but there is something to that, right? Like loss is constant time travel. It's like the overlay of one timeline over another timeline. You've written a lot about the present absence of Fisher, and we've kind of talked about this off and on through our whole time together, keeping Fisher alive, that he, you are still in a relationship with him. He is your third child, right? He's still there. So how, how does Fisher's absence show up in your presence for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, he's there all the time. It just mean mm-hmm. I think about him all the time. But I think about him often, particularly because of like the work that I've been doing recently references him so much. But also, 
I mean, we don't have enough time for me to answer this question completely, but I'll tell you one way is that he's a twin, right? Fisher and Truman. So uh, one thing that is beautiful but uh, and very sad <laughs> is that my son Truman is, I mean, I, I love him so much. And as he grows and becomes more himself, it also makes me miss his brother more because it's like, oh, fuck, they're supposed to be two. I very easily, if, you know, one thing had gone slightly different, if a piece of food had gone down Fisher's digestive system somewhat differently, he would be sitting next to you and we would be doing this all together. And in that way, his absence is very present all the time. And a thing that I, I always want to say after I talk about that is that it doesn't mean that I love my children who are alive less or that I didn't get enough. It's like having half of infinity, which is also infinity. You know what I mean? It's like I, I got more than you could ever possibly get. And I thought I was going to get twice this, but twice this is this. Not to nerd out about infinity too much. <laughs> I love nerding out about infinity. That was beautiful. There's something in that though, right? Like there is always the the ghost life of there should be two and every milestone that Truman hits, there should have been two or there could have been two or there might have been two. And, you know, this is true for so many people that talking about that overlay of timelines, right? They are missing at every point in the future, right? Loss isn't just a single timeline event. It is something that has ripples. Yeah, and I think for, for a lot of people who lose someone older than them, a grandfather, a dad, a mom, whatever, now the photo album of that person is complete, and now what you have are the memories that you've locked into that photo album that lives in your head. When you lose a child, the album is empty. So for m most people, it will be empty forever. For us, half of it is full. You know what I mean? It's like, all, here's all these pictures here. And it's not regret. That's not the right thing. I don't know. It's, um, I just, I miss him. And I miss him more because his brother is the best. Mm. I love that you are in the world having these conversations, talking about all of this stuff, because you know we, we've also, the other thread in so much of what we've been talking about is loneliness and community and connection and that, that power of telling the truth and the permission that that gives for other people to tell the truth. So I'm gonna ask you a combo closing question. Oh, wow. Because I think you can roll with it. A Pizza Hut Taco Bell. <laughs> no. Sorry. No. All right, I'm going to ask a combo question that is much better than that presentation. <laughs> Thinking about not just what you've learned about grief, but what you've learned about community and the power of telling the truth and allowing other people to tell the truth, all of these things. Taking that and combining it with my usual closing question, knowing what you know and living what you've lived, what does hope look like for you? Does it 
figure into any of this? Well, first of all, what I would say is that we survived the immediate trauma because Truman gave us hope. I think that was a lot for us. And in addition to that, we gave each other hope. Like there were definitely times, I remember one instance, for example, when we found out that Fisher was going to die, my wife asking me how it would be possible for her to ever be happy again. And I think in that moment, I completely just lied and said, I know that you will be. (laughs) Not lying like telling an untruth, but having no foreknowledge that that was correct. And I think in that way, hope helped us both survive what happened. And the hope that our son could be like he was still in the NICU. Like we under, we had a sense of like what the world was and it totally flipped it upside down. We thought that you go to the hospital, your kids are born, you go home with your kids. Now one of them's died and you're like, oh shit, maybe that's not what a hospital is. And I think that hope is what sustained us through that time. The belief that things could get better and they have gotten immeasurably better. I mean, astonishingly better from what they were which isn't to say that we don't feel the sadness anymore. I feel it all the time. But the hope is that you'll be able to manage it and in some ways even love it, which I do. Mm. Almost every answer to every question that I've asked you has had connection and intimacy at its core, which I really love. I don't know who I would be without those things Mm. (laughs) and those people. And you're out there making space for other people to access that and explore that and connect in that. I hope so. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) you are. I think so. (laughs) I think so. I have just spent the last two days studying up on you and reading reviews and reading conversations. And I can objectively say from two days of research that (laughs) I think you're I think you're nailing it. Right. Because people so much people are talking and it we've got such a long-standing gag order on telling the truth about grief that it takes all of us being brave enough to have these conversations in order to make things better for everybody right it really is in telling the truth about this to ourselves to each other to a wider stage if that's something that floats your boat but like the more we have these conversations the better the softer the more skilled the world gets around everybody's pain. And that's, that's what we're doing. I hope so. I hope so too. All right. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here with me and in the world. We're not going to link to the show because the show in its live run has ended, but it will be out with Audible Theater sometime soon. So we will link to that. Where else should people look for you? What do you want people to know? <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, you can, I guess, follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and the thing that used to be Twitter <laughs> at Cruz Kane, C-R-U-Z-K-A-Y-N-E. And um, I don't know, just like give people hugs and tell them that you love them, I guess. I love that. That's a great thing to go out on. All right, everybody, stay tuned for your questions to carry with you. We will be right back after this break. Thank you. 
witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood, a brand that's truly close to my heart because it was founded in my kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton. Today, Laird Superfood boasts an amazing lineup of products, all crafted with the highest quality plant-based ingredients. Think functional mushrooms, real fruits and veggies. What makes us unique? We're committed to using only real ingredients, no artificial and no natural flavors. Two of my absolute favorites are prebiotic daily greens, really great tasting, and we've added some mushrooms to support your gut even a little more. Then there's our instant latte lineup. We've got instant mocha, instant latte, chai, if you want to discover Laird Superfood, you can do it at your local retailer on Amazon or at LairdSuperfood.com. And if you put in the code GABBY2024 on our website, you'll get an exclusive 20% off your first purchase. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. And you know what really struck me in this particular conversation? The level of interpersonal thoughtfulness that Michael showed. Do you know what I mean? Loss never affects just one person in a family system. Everybody grieves differently, and sometimes those differences create conflict. Over and over again, I heard Michael say that his creative work is always run through I mean, he didn't use these words, but I think of it like an integrity meter, right? He checked in with himself both as he was creating his show and after each performance, and he thought about how what he said on stage would affect himself, his wife, his kids, his whole family. None of us exist in a vacuum. I think this is something a lot of writers think about, how what they write might be seen or heard by the people involved in the story they're telling. And sometimes we end up deciding not to write anything or say anything out of concern for harming the people we might write about. Sometimes we decide not to write the whole story because honestly, like we don't want to invite conversation about it from certain members of the people involved in the story. I don't know. There's no one correct answer about that stuff. I just really love the through line of respect in the ways that Michael talked about his work. I thought that was really cool. 
How about you? What stuck with you from this conversation? Everybody's going to take something different from the show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, let me know. Tag at Refuge and Grief on all the social platforms so I can hear how this conversation affected you. You can also leave your thoughts as a review on your favorite podcast app. Reviews are super helpful in spreading the word about the show and getting more conversations started. Also, I love your reviews. I read every single one of them. So if you've left one, thank you. <laughs> Follow the show at It's Okay on TikTok and Refuge and Grief everywhere else to see video clips from the show. Use the hashtag It's Okay Pod on all of the platforms so not only I can find you, others can too. None of us are entirely okay, and it's time we start talking about that together. Yeah? It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That's it for this week, friends. Coming up next week, Jamila Jamil on cancel culture and the particular sadness of looking back on your younger self and the choices you made. <laughs> Follow the show on your favorite platforms, everybody, so you don't miss an episode. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, with logistical and social media support from Micah. Post-production and editing by the ever-patient Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and today's background noise provided by the too many cups of coffee I had making me bounce around a bit too much in a slightly squeaky chair. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.